Any views or opinions expressed in this podcast are strictly the views or opinions of the presenter. Nothing in here is the view of the firms, corporations, financial entities that anybody represents. Uh, Nothing expressed here is a view of any um, regulator or semi-regulatory agency. Uh, All content is intended to be educational. Nothing in this episode construes specific investment advice. And if you do require advice, you should seek an appropriate advisor, be that a financial planner or a tax advisor or possibly a lawyer. I just really wanted to make the financial planning community aware of of this filing requirement because it will be important going ahead. And of course, we, we strive to avoid penalties whenever we can. This episode of the CE Drive podcast is brought to you by Business Career College. Business Career College is a leading provider of financial services education, including the life insurance licensing program, the entire set of courses leading to the CFP certification, which is actually where I spend most of my time teaching and where I've met many of the participants in these podcasts. We also provide continuing education credits, live classroom and webinar instruction in support of the Elder Planning Counselor designation, and a few other odds and ends in support of folks in the financial services industry. You can find the full catalog of course offerings at www.businesscareercollege.com. This is Jason Watt. Welcome back to the CE Drive podcast. Uh, Today's episode, um, a little bit of a mix here, so pay attention for what you need for CE credits. I don't believe this episode will be good for British Columbia CE credits. The BC rules say that financial planning topics are only valid if they are um, relevant to insurance and ANS. And I can build a connection here. I I don't know. This is where I don't know how much of a fight I'd want to be in with my regulator around this. You know, you can make a connection that you have to understand trusts and have to understand probate and so forth in order to properly sell insurance. And I think that's probably valid. Um, But on its face, the BC rules say that um, financial planning topics are only good to the extent that they deal with insurance concepts. So I don't know. This is probably not directly an insurance concept. Um, Alberta, uh, good for one life, no ANS. Uh, Saskatchewan, good for one life. Just be cautious that in Saskatchewan, again, those uh, non-insurance uh, financial planning topics can only comprise up to five of your needed CE credits. Manitoba will be good for one credit. Ontario will be good for one credit. It'll be good for one advocate or IAS credit. Um, a good for a financial planning credit for FP Canada, a professional development credit from IROC, and a tax planning credit from MFDA. All right, lots there. Um, so this is uh, getting us back into interview territory now. I haven't done an interview in a while, but I've got a whole bunch um, queued up here. So we'll talk about that, um, obviously, over the next little while. Lots of interviews. We've got uh, CGIB Navigator coming up. We've got um, a bunch of group sort of um, relevant offerings. So lots here. Um, the object for today, this kills me. Um, I think I talked about this once before briefly on the podcast, but... Uh, this is my set of headphones. You can see them here um, that I you normally see me wearing. I left the dongle in a hotel room 
and uh, I can't get it back. And I don't think it's possible. I've looked around a little bit to replace the dongle. That's the little thing that plugs into your computer. Um, I know it sounds like a dirty word, but it's the little thing that plugs into your computer that lets your USB port pick up the headset. And it's like a $200 headset now that's useless without the dongle. So today's object is a headset. Um, and I'm wearing my cheap headset, my $40 Logitech Walmart headset. On that note, actually, I'm curious about the blurred background. I have my background blurred now. And I'm wondering what people think about this. And the biggest issue with it is I think it looks dumb with the little place where you can see my real background between the headset and my head. I don't know how to fix that. If somebody does, I'd love to know. So anyways, let me know what you think. Blurred background, non-blurred background, you know, whatever the case is. All right. So in today's episode, I have uh, Elaine Tindall on. Elaine's an accountant who recently completed her uh, CFP certification. She reached out to me and said, I think we got to talk about these new trust rules. And I think it is important. Now, we're going to talk about them in the interview. I want to get into just some basic trust reporting or trust taxation rules here before we do the interview. So with trusts, I'm going to say probably 95% of the time, there's actually no tax reporting with most trusts. And in fact, as you'll hear in the interview, a lot of trusts, we don't even really know there's a trust or we haven't thought about the fact that what we're doing creates a trust. So Elaine's going to talk about three different examples of that in the interview. Regardless of that, the trust then, what we're doing here is essentially we have a different kind of ownership. So normally when I own property, it's what's called fee simple. Ownership fee simple means I own it and control it. There's no distinction between my ownership and my ability to use that property. Trust ownership is different. Trust ownership means there's a different person who is the legal owner of the property, and then somebody else is the beneficial owner of the property. And we normally do this because the beneficial owner maybe wouldn't make the best decisions or can't legally own property. As Larry Wood from the University of Calgary likes to say, uh, trust means no trust. So you would use a trust where you don't trust for some reason or can't trust that beneficiary to properly deal with that property. So I hope that makes sense. I hope we understand there. So then the taxation on this normally is really just flow through taxation. So the, the trust has some property that it owns and it generates income. That income, normally we're just going to distribute that to the beneficiary. We uh, issue a T3. A lot of these trusts, though, there's no income at all or Really, kind of the beneficiary has just been paying tax the whole time. We didn't bother with T3s and the beneficiary continues to pay the tax. That that does happen a little bit. So the requirement for a trust to pay tax really only shows up where we have the trust keeping and retaining income or the trust that's bringing in income and then sort of actively distributing that out to some collection of beneficiaries. So most trusts, if they earn income, if they bring in income and retain that income, they're going to be taxed at the top marginal tax rate. And trusts have a year end of December 31st, other than really graduated rate of state trusts, which have some exceptions here. We'll talk about that in a moment. But for the vast majority of trusts, what happens then is the trust brings in some income. And then if it retains it, it pays tax at top marginal tax rate. And then if it pays it out to the beneficiaries, the beneficiaries are just taxed as if they had earned the income originally. So if it's 
dividend income that would have a gross up in credit. Then the beneficiaries pay tax on that gross up in credit, uh, incorporating the gross up in credit. If it's capital gains income, then the 50% inclusion rate applies. It just flows through and retains that character when the beneficiaries pay tax. There are some exceptions here. Graduated rate of state is the big one in personal tax anyway. So the graduated rate of state for the first 36 months after death, one trust, one trust that's created by your will can access the graduated rate taxation. So still pay tax like a personal taxpayer, like an individual taxpayer, and it can have a year end other than December 31st, usually sometime based on the year of death or the anniversary of death, sorry. So that's your graduated rate of state trust, only 36 months of beneficial taxation there, and then really nothing other than that. Um, the qualified disability trust is another exception here, QDT. This is also a testamentary trust, so also created by death. And the QDT allows access to graduated rate taxation where you have a beneficiary with a disability. This is a fairly complex tax mechanism. I don't want to get into the finer points of QDT here. And we might do another episode on it at some point. I'd like to see people actually using them. I, I don't know that there's anybody using them out there, uh, or at least not much. So maybe if I find a real-life example of one being used, I'll get that person to come on the podcast and talk about it. So yes, QDT. And then with trust, we actually have a downside to trusts with taxation. That's the 21-year rule. The vast majority of trusts used in individual planning circumstances are going to be subject to the 21-year rule. This says that when the property, when the trust comes into existence, so that's if I settle a trust today, I transfer property into trust today, then we know every 21 years, there's going to be a deemed disposition of the trust assets. Fine. But then if we, sorry, that's a, that's the 21 year rule, okay? Or if you write a trust into your will, the day you die, that trust is settled. And then 21 years after death, there would be the, again, the 21 year rule would apply. So we have that deemed disposition rule. Um, however, the 21 year rule does not apply to um, a whole range of trusts between individuals and their spouses where the settler is age 65 plus. So if I settle a trust for myself, sort of to help out with my um, estate and uh, retirement planning, this is called an alter ego trust. If I'm 65 plus and I'm the sole beneficiary of that trust during my lifetime, then there's no 21 year rule. If my spouse and I settle a trust together, or I settle a spouse for her, or she settles a spouse for me, or um, I settle a trust for both of us, or she settles a trust for both of us, this whole combination of trusts here, as long as the settler is age 65 plus when the trust is settled, there's no 21-year rule there either. But in other cases, you would have the 21-year rule. So that's even a little bit of a downside to trust taxation. I think we can appreciate then that the common mythology around trusts, that they are somehow this big tax planning tool, uh, we can really dispel that. There are some places where using a trust can help with other tax planning outcomes so we want to achieve some tax planning outcomes by a transfer of ownership, but we don't want to fully transfer ownership. The trust can help with that. So on that note, uh, let's roll into the interview. Hi, I'm here today with Elaine Tyndall. Elaine is an accountant, CPA, also CFP, uh, based in Vancouver, practice in British Columbia. 
And uh, Elaine reached out to me a couple weeks, I guess a month or so ago now, and uh, we had a little conversation about the pending changes to trust rules, which is a pretty big deal, I think, Elaine. And, sure. yeah. and we that sort of led us to this discussion about coming on the podcast to talk about this. So before we get into the, the trust rules and what all this means, can you just give us a little rundown um, about yourself and your practice, Elaine? Uh, I am a CPA, as you mentioned, in BC. I am a sole practitioner. Uh, most of my clients are small businesses and individuals. I've been in public practice for about, I'd say, 15 years and I recently uh, uh, undertook writing the CFP exam and met all the qualifications to become a CFP, and happily, I was successful. So, congratulations! Yeah, of course, that's a big deal. So, um, I'm actually curious about a couple things on the CFP side. There, I'll, I'll go down this path, I guess, because you brought it up. So, um, so what is it that makes somebody who's running, you know, a successful a small tax practice decide to go and pursue CFP certification. It's no small effort to do this. Well, I I really just did it for fun. <laughs> Maybe I'm kind of a sick person, but <laughs> which is really the generally worst answer I've ever heard, Elaine. So yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, you know, it was just basically personal interest. I, I really enjoyed. Uh, uh, you know, reading personal finance articles and, and doing research on the stock market and investing. And it really ties into, of course, my, my practice as a sole practitioner. You run into all sorts of different people in my practice, all walks of life. And I was just really looking for a way to help them more. And yeah, it was, it was just a fun thing to do. So what would be some of the things that you picked up in there that were completely new to you? Oh, insurance for one, definitely. I, I knew absolutely nothing about insurance, but luckily I did have a client. I do have a client who was quite helpful to me. He's uh, an insurance guy. So I would call him and say, what, what are segregated funds? I had no idea. And <laughs> yeah, he was, he was able to help me. So that, that was a big help. So insurance was definitely a big thing. Right. Um, what about things like Canada pension plan decisions or like, was that something you were pretty good with already or do you mm, find that that no, added to your yeah. toolbox? Yeah. Yeah. That took some learning as well, for sure. But you know, I, I do have clients there of the retirement age, so I do get those questions all the time. So it was, it was very useful to learn that because, you know, I could actually answer their questions. I'm going to, so this is something you and I haven't talked about at all, but then, you know, I I have this preference where people take salary income mm -hmm. and contribute to the Canada Pension Plan and so forth. Do you uh, do you have an opinion around that? Did, you, did you, this change how you looked at that at all? Anything you can share there? Um, yeah, I would say I have that preference as well because I think if you're taking dividends for 30 years and then suddenly you retire and you have absolutely nothing left. To, to draw on for your CPP, you, you may be unpleasantly surprised as to what you're entitled to. So, but you know, it is with the CPP rates going up so dramatically in the last few years, it is, it is quite an endeavor, especially as a self-employed person. Now you're, you're talking about $7,000 a year that's coming right out of your pocket just for Canada pension. That's not in income tax at all, it's just your CPP. But I, I have read articles that later on down the road, we are expecting 
the amount that you'll be entitled to for the CPP will be much higher. So hopefully that's the case. That's the trade-off. So yeah, the uh, the idea here roughly, it's going to be with no inflation, it's going to be about $8,000 by the time the reform is all done in 2025. Mm. And the trade-off there is that for the person who is 18 in 2025, by time they retire and have the full benefit of the new CPP, their CPP is going to be about 1.5 times what it would be today, again, ignoring inflation. So, mm-hmm. so, mm-hmm. Yeah. so there, there is that benefit, but uh, yeah, I, I hear this. It's, you know, when, when you get to an $8,000 expense for the self-employed person, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's going to give accountants, I, I know already today, it's sort of a balancing act and I think it's going to push some people towards, you know, all dividends to avoid the CPP premiums. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, for sure. I'm not a huge fan, but I not a huge fan of that decision. There are times when it makes sense. I'm not saying nobody should ever do it, but right. Yeah, I appreciate yeah. that. I think yeah. that a lot of the listeners will find that interesting because I know I hear this from my students all the time, where they say, mm-hmm. you know, the accountant told that person to take all dividends, mm-hmm. and I don't think that's the right thing. But they're stuck, sort of having to work with what the accountant has told mm-hmm. to the mm-hmm. client, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, so just. On that note of clients, then, do you have an ideal client for your um, accounting practice? Um, I wouldn't say so. I really take a, a wide variety of clients from, you know, people, young people just starting out in their their careers or in university all the way up to seniors. And, you know, I, I, I know some, some practitioners restrict to high net worth or, or you know, a certain industry, but no, I have a, a wide range of clients. So so this is interesting with like the young person starting out in university and, you know, choosing to use an accountant for, I assume for tax filings then? Yes. So yeah. how does that person sort of balance, like are they, would they be children of another client or I'm just wondering how they balance the, like that need for tax planning and then being able to pay for it because you know there's a cost, right? You you have value, so there's a cost there. Yeah, yeah. Well, generally, I I don't do any advertising. I would say ninety nine percent of my clients come to me from other clients. So yes, generally it's the children of existing clients, and you know they've seen their parents come to me for years, and here they are, eighteen years old, and now it's time to file your taxes, and and let's make a plan, and let's talk about. What, what we can do for you. This is interesting. Um, have you run into people like that where they haven't filed their taxes for like four or five years and now they got to get caught up? Oh, yeah. Yeah, all the time. Definitely. Okay. Is that a giant pain or can you navigate those fairly simply? Uh, yeah, it's it's okay. Um, I, I would say if you're getting up to 10 years or you haven't filed, it is kind of a pain. <laughs> okay. The one I... I've seen that's problematic is the person who had self-employment income in there and didn't do their CPP remittances. Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a problem for sure. Is that just a matter then of making a deal with CRA or you just suck it up and write a check? Like what's the... the Uh, Yeah, I think you just have to suck it up and you have to file and, and pay the money. I mean, yeah, it is kind of a hit, but... 
my clients, I, I try to keep on top of them and impress on them. You know, you can't be too late. I don't like them to go many years without filing. So, you know, in my, my downtime, I'll be calling clients, looking at my list. Okay, who hasn't filed for a few years? And I'll call them up and say, hey, how is it going? <laughs> and, you know, try and get them back on track because, yeah, I don't like to see that at all. You know, that makes the, sense. Uh, after a certain point, CRA just arbitrarily assesses the income and, and then you're stuck with what they have, but they still want you to file. So either way, you're going to be filing. That's a fair point, right? I never thought about the arbitrary assessment at some point because they would have seen a history of self-employment income and assume that would continue, right? Yeah, yeah. So they just they, they pick a number and usually it's the highest number they can come up with and they send you a bill and say, you got to pay. But then at the same time, they say, but we still want your tax return. So okay. yeah. you're stuck. Yeah. Um, makes sense. So the, the impetus for this discussion, of course, is around the new trust reporting requirements. And it's curious because this got Royal Assent, is it yesterday, I think it got Royal Assent? Yeah, or, yeah, I read that. Yeah, yeah. December 15th. So there we, yeah, December 15th, 2022, after, as you pointed out in our discussion beforehand, originally being passed in the 2018 federal budget. Yes, that's what it looks like. It looks like this has been an issue since budget 2018, but I think things got kind of delayed with COVID and they kept pushing back the deadline, but here we are. Here we are. <laughs> so most of the items in what's Bill C-32 um, are new from the fall economic update. So that includes, mm -hmm. for example, the first time Homesavers account, um, which I'm kind of surprised that it already got Royal Assent. I thought it was going to be a right. couple more months yet. Right. So gonna have uh, to, yeah, I don't know what yeah. the effective date is for that. Yeah. Or... We're not going to see any institution with them, I think, until March or April. Like, there's a date in there that there's an Yeah, yeah, that's what I heard. So, yeah. Yeah, so doesn't, I think, really matter what the effective date is until some institution rolls one out. So, mm -hmm. um, right. The... Uh, uh, do you, I'm curious here again, off topic, but do you care about the FHSA? Do you think this is going to make, you're in Vancouver where home buying is such a big deal. Do you think yeah. it's going to make a big difference? Uh, no, I don't think so. And and I think you've had some people on your podcast as well talking about this and the general consensus among planners seems to be like, this is not a great tax policy, but you know, we have to work with what we have. So what can you do? Like in terms of, <laughs> Providing affordability for housing? No, no, never. <laughs> it's not going to happen. But as a savings vehicle, yeah, I, I don't see that it's a bad thing. I mean, it's better than the home buyer's plan and that you don't have to pay back a loan at the end of it. And I would just tell my young clients, why not? Even if you don't foresee you will ever buy a house, why not put the money in? And after 15 years, if you still haven't bought a house, it just goes into your RSV. Yeah, the way they've set it up, it does make sense to use it. I'm not, I think you're right. Yeah. And this is, um, Aaron Hector was on earlier talking about this. Yeah. That, yeah. Um, as much as we might not like the tax policy, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't use it, right? Right. Yeah. 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 So, um, so, of course, the big thing that's in there that I think is the, the full scope of which I think is probably not yet understood is around new trust reporting requirements. So can you give us a little rundown on what the trust reporting requirements look like? Well, it looks like 
in the past. Uh, trusts did not generally have to file returns unless they had tax payable or there was a capital disposition. But at this point, it seems like they're updating that so that every trust has to file a T3 return. And the penalties for not filing are quite severe. And as our topic today is bear trusts, uh, I think this has kind of been on everyone's radar that bear trusts are now going to be required to file this T3 return, which may be a pain for a lot of practitioners. So this is interesting to me because you don't, you sort of, I think, actively avoid most kind of trust tax business. Like you're you're dealing mostly, I think, with like small business owners and families and situations where there's not overly complex trust requirements. I think that's, that's a fair summary. Yes, yes, that's true. No, I don't really delve into the world of uh, trust accounting or trust taxation. That seems to be a specialty all on its own. So that's, that's not where I'm going. So I I think most people would assume that like you shouldn't care about this, but that's not the case at all, is it? Right. Right. Yes. I I mean, I did have a conversation with a bear or with a a sole practitioner not too long ago. And I said, oh, there's new rules about bear trust reporting. And she said to me, what's a bear trust? (laughs) She had no idea. I mean, this is not something that someone may encounter in their practice, but I have encountered it in my practice because For instance, I had a client who did a rollover. They did a Section 85 rollover where the legal title of the property never changed. I guess, you know, I didn't do the rollover. It was one of the bigger firms that did the rollover. But because of the property transfer tax, they decided to not pay it and keep the the property in the legal title holder's name. But they did up a bear trust agreement. So this corporation is sitting there. They have the property on the books, but the if you look up the title, it's in the name of the individual. And there you go. That's a bear trust agreement. And that and would fall this, under these rules. Yeah. So this and the, the trigger here is uh, $50,000 of fair market value of the property, Elaine, if I'm not mistaken. So that's where you, you trigger these, re- these reporting requirements. And of course, you know, I'm assuming with their... Section 85, you're probably, you know, several hundred thousand dollars of property. Right, right. Well, well, if you're referring to the the exemptions, the $50,000, uh, I don't see that that would, would fall under the exemptions because the exemptions only apply to bank accounts, uh, like cash, I oh, think, and listed securities. Yeah. So real estate, you're automatically, you're required to file this, so... That's a good point. I was thinking yeah. it was $50,000 across all property, no. but it's, yeah. No. Okay. No. Wow. Okay. So in this case, then, you know, and just so this you're in BC where there is a land transfer tax. I'm in Alberta mm-hmm. where there's no land transfer tax. Right. Very common to see this sort of planning done to avoid land transfer tax, right? Where you keep mm-hmm. the original beneficial owner, you have another person who gains, you know, essentially trust ownership over that property. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there's not any further planning done. Mm-hmm. No, it seemed to me, you know, off topic, I thought in BC, there was discussion for some time about changing that loophole, because it was basically a loophole that if you didn't change the title at the land registry office, you didn't have to pay the property transfer tax. But I thought, and I couldn't really find anything about this, if 
they had closed that loophole where if there's a, a change in beneficial ownership, you had to pay the property transfer tax. So I'm not exactly sure what the case is in BC these days. I'll but see if I can find need... something for the, the post-show notes here. Yeah, yeah, because I know that was that was one of the, the concerns they had about, you know, even if you're buying shares of a corporation, I think there was, there's, you know, you're, you're in, there's property in there. I think there was some concern about avoiding the property transfer tax. So right. I'm not sure what they've done on that, that end. I had a client recently inquire about doing a uh, rollover, and she was told she had to pay the property transfer tax. So maybe maybe that loophole no longer exists. Okay. I'll find something. I'll have um, some note post-show here about that. So Because it is... It's a fairly complex issue and it's variable from province to province. And I know mm-hmm. Ontario has wrestled with some of the same kind of policy mm-hmm. questions around that. So mm-hmm. that'll be relevant for sure. Um, so then where else would you see um, bear trusts or other trust situations where somebody might not be um, aware that there's a trust in place? Well, that's where my other concern comes in. And that has to do with situations where there is no bare trust agreement and the parties may not even be aware that they have a bare trust agreement. And uh, that would apply to perhaps an adult child who takes on their parent to their own property purchase, maybe in a 1% equity. And, you know, it, the parent is just coming on for financing purposes, perhaps, but there's no beneficial ownership. The parent is just sitting there as a legal title holder, but really they don't have a beneficial interest in the property. And what happens now? Does that mean that they have to file this T3 return or or pay the penalty? Or when the property is disposed of, they would have to report a capital gain because you know they're seen as a beneficial owner of the property. Um, how complicated is T3 filing here? Oh, it, it's it's not complicated. It's it's just a matter of, of disclosure, really. And this this kind of reminds me of the T1135, you know, the T1135 foreign reporting uh, that you have to do every every year. I mean, there's it's it's a form. There's no tax payable, but the fact is, if you have foreign assets over $100,000 and you don't file, you're looking at the same kind of penalty, $2,500 a year. And in this day and age, I think I've been in practice 15 years. And as far as I know, this has always been a question on the tax return, but I still encounter people who are unaware of this T1135 requirement. And yes, and then we have to go and do a voluntary disclosure. And yeah, it's it's kind of surprising. Well, some people do their own taxes, so how would they know? And the T1135 questions are, um, like, there does seem to be some exceptions there that then may not apply when push comes to shove, I think, with the T1135. I think that might end up being the same with the bear trust reporting. It's it's possible, yes. But uh, I think as far as I know, the, this bear trust reporting, and unless... Perhaps they exempt individuals. I don't know if that's on the radar. Are they requiring everyone, like say a parent and a child? That would make our lives easier. <laughs> but 
So and it's the filing here. Now, I, I agree with you that T3 is fairly straightforward, but we're going to be required also to indicate the full set of beneficial owners for that trust, aren't we? Yes, yes, that seems to be the case. And, and I guess uh, it, it's been suggested that it may be hard to get this information. I, I mean, in my own client base, I can't see that I would have too many situations like that. But I have heard that maybe it would be difficult to track down all these beneficiaries. Maybe they're overseas, maybe they're non-resident. So that's a possibility as well. Yeah, could be yeah, minors where you don't have a connection with the parents, for example. I could see that being a, a potential challenge here where, you know, you brought the grandkids or great grandkids into your plan and had to bypass the parents for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. This happens mm -hmm. sometimes. So, um, yeah, I think, I don't know. I just don't think that we're um, prepared for the, the level of complexity with this or the, the number of unintended outcomes. So, now, you mentioned already, just going back to where you see this in your practice, you talked about the sort of combo of people buying a house or owning a house together. Mm -hmm. um, what about with uh, bank accounts, that kind of thing? Yeah, I mean, that's fairly common, too. You have an adult child who is taking care of an elderly parent and, you know, the bills have to be paid. So the adult child will go into the bank with the parent and, okay, say, put me on her bank account. And there you go. I, I mean, she's probably not intending for it to be. Uh, uh, that's her money. There is like a joint bank account. And she's saying, no, I'm just holding it in trust for my mother. I'm just managing the money. I know that can be quite complicated when it comes to uh, filing the final return and going through probate because I have seen, or I've heard of cases where someone passes away and there's an adult child on the bank account and Suddenly, the adult child claims, no, that was a joint bank account. Me and mom, we decided that would be my money. And then the other children come and say, no, that was a bare trust agreement. You know, you really, you don't have beneficial ownership of the money at all. And, you know, that can be a source of contention when settling the will. The Pecor estate is, of course, the famous example of that, where it wasn't actually the, it was the child's soon-to-be ex-spouse who made that argument that that was right. Noah. Yeah, so... Um, so, it, you know, just another layer of complexity with that fairly common arrangement, right? Where you have yes, the, yes, the kid on there to help manage the account. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah well, there is that, that, that $50,000 exemption. So I could see they're, they're trying to weed out circumstances like that. But they said if at any time in the year the balance goes above 50000 then yeah, you're, you're outside and now you have to file the T3. So what if mom sells her house and the money hits the bank account for a short period of time before going into a GIC, then suddenly you're, you're, you know, you're both on the bank account and that's a bare trust agreement and you have to file. That's, and that's information that CRA would have relatively easy access to. I think that's. Uh, oh yeah. So. Yeah. So, Okay. This is a lot to process, honestly. I'm just thinking about the number of situations that you run into where, yeah, like this is a good example. The bank account creeps up over $50,000 mm -hmm. for a short period of time. I think that most people would assume that your tax filing obligations are based on what's true on December 31st or, you know, some like that's a common enough tax rule. Mm -hmm. So that's a, uh, wow, that's tough. Um, 
Okay. So then with your clients, how are you going to address this? What's the, like, how does the accountant and this, you're dealing with people who are getting, you know, good professional tax advice. So can we start there? How are you going to address this with your clients? Well, I've, I've already been preparing them because at first we thought this was going to be taking effect at the end of this year and the filing required by March 2023, because of course, trusts have a year end of December 31st, and the filing has to be done within 90 days. So I have been, some of my clients, I have been asking them, hey, you know, this is coming up. Do you have any any sort of bare trust agreement, whether you know it or not? Because as I said before, there's not necessarily a written agreement. I mean, it seems like back in the 80s or 90s, this was a, a big thing, putting your kids on title to your house. I still I still have clients come to me and they say, I have a great idea. I'm going to put my child on title to my house. And I think, no, stop. Why? <laughs> but I think perhaps in the 80s or 90s, probate was was a big thing of avoiding probate fees. And, and they all seem to think this is great to put your kids on title and then you could avoid probate fees when you pass away. So for estate planning purposes, I think it was, you know, it was easier than it is now because all of this reporting around real estate, it's not something you can just kind of sneak in under the radar and not say anything and hope nobody notices. Yeah, I... I think about this, like there's all these cases, you're right, avoid probate. Um, there, you talked about affordability before, so the kids can't get on the mortgage by themselves. And that's that's our case. Like I actually, I'm on title with my daughter on the house that she lives in because she wasn't going to qualify for the mortgage on her own. Right. So, right. yeah. So I, I know we have to figure this there out. There you right? go. <laughs> yeah. So that's... You know, that's a good example. Um, I talked about that on a previous episode, actually, about helping her buy a house that way. So mm-hmm. that's, yeah, I don't know. Um, you know, there's, I see it sometimes with um, financial accounts, like you said, where it's that control issue. These are, you know, like, are you going to have a, a questionnaire where you say, are any of the following 10 questions, which might seem like none of my business true? Is this kind of how you address this or? Well, I think we'll have to in order to really do our due diligence. I don't see how we can avoid the issue. I, I mean, I, I have had clients who recently had children, their adult children buying houses, and I'm asking them, oh, are you on title as well? <laughs> and, and yeah. you know, this is not something that generally comes up when you're doing your, your year-end tax filing. You know, they just say, oh, so-and-so bought a house, and they don't really mention that they took a 1% equity ownership of it or, or whatever. So I don't, you know, I see this is maybe the tax filing will be a lot more complicated and, you know, just have to spend more time with the client asking them these questions, but you know, it's gone that way so far as well, because, you know, we have to ask them about their foreign assets. And sometimes that doesn't come up either. Like you may have a client and no, you didn't know that, Maybe she has a bank account from when she left her her country 20 years ago and she's maintained that. And oh, surprise, surprise, it's over a hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> yeah, that's I mean the difference there is that if you sort of accidentally have, you know, over a hundred thousand dollars of property, CRA is 
I think, less likely to become aware of that. Not impossible, mm-hmm. right? It, like, mm-hmm. And I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't report. I, we have to properly deal with that T1135. But here, I think you're just going to run into so many more cases where CRA can fairly easily get access to the information that's going to you know, trigger a reassessment mm-hmm. or trigger this penalty. So. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the penalty—that's that's the scary part. The twenty-five hundred a year. I mean, you go a few years, twenty-five hundred a year really adds up. Yeah. So. Yeah, twenty-five dollars a day maximum, right? It's—is it five percent of the value of the property to a maximum of? Well, there's a. I, I see they've added a gross negligence penalty in there, which is up that's to five percent yes. of the fair market value. Right. So I don't know what they would consider to be grossly negligent and would require this penalty. But of course, you never know. Yeah, I don't know either. Um, as you said earlier, the common trend there is to assess the maximum sort of imaginable amount and go from there, right? And let the taxpayer argue it back down. So we'll see. That's, yeah. That's yeah. a tough one. Yeah. yeah. And I think then about, you know, the number of like, for your clients, they're going to be, I think, well served here. But you look at the number of people who, you know, use not to pick on TurboTax, like who file with TurboTax or file with Wealth Simple Tax or whatever. Is I don't know. Are those programs going to be able to sort of ask enough questions to to make sure that people file their T three, and then it's going to feel intrusive? Like you know, it, I think sometimes when you're using those kinds of services. Yeah, answer yes to the question and it says oh congratulations you have to file a t3 we need another whatever it is three hundred dollars like yeah yeah i know i can i can see that yeah i i yeah i i don't know i well i'm an accountant so i think people should use accountants because you know this is this is our our lives our lives is keeping up with tax updates and you may you may not know everything if you're filing your taxes on your own though you know people do it and they don't run into any problems but i would hesitate because there's so much unknown like this you know who would have thought this is going to trigger a a t3 filing requirement yeah i think this is a, a tough one now um i know we're not really here to talk about tax policy like that's not your forte but i'm wondering do you have a sense for what the the policy reasons for this are what's the what's the benefit going to be of adding this complexity to you know individual taxpayers lives well i think you know the government has been under fire recently for the you know money laundering and you know we don't really know who owns different properties in vancouver we're always you know, speculating who owns that $31 million mansion and you look it up, oh, it's some numbered corporation and where did they get the money from? So in in BC, we have the uh, Land Ownership Registry, Transparency Registry. And I know the lawyers in BC were busy filing all those reports to the end of November 30th, 2022. That was the deadline. And I can see it's it's got some elements of this because bear trusts as I understand had to file this as well and i i did read somewhere that you know it was the same thing if a parent has a stake in a child's property or or as a bear trustee then you know they were required to file this but 
I don't know. You know, that's not my, my expertise, but it seems to me it's a common theme. Real estate. I mean, real estate is such a big part of our economy. How could the CRA not go after situations where people are not correctly filing? Yeah, it's it is it's an impossible problem to solve without, you know, you it's like any tax policy. You can't just target the people who are doing wrong. You you have to cast a wide net and then figure it out, right? So mm-hmm. yeah. Um so any advice for the financial advisors, financial planners who would be listening to the podcast, what should they be doing here? Well, if they have clients they know who are in these situations, definitely make sure the accountant is aware <laughs> because, you know, perhaps the accountant isn't even aware that this, this structure exists or you know, they've, got, they've got different people listed as a title holder. So, yeah, I think that's, that's very important. Um, you, do you have a sense of roughly what it's going to cost to file the T3 here? Like if I'm you know, already paying an accountant to do my, my normal, you know, let's say, self-employed tax returns, do you have a sense for what? Mm, what the- I don't know. Like I, I wouldn't want to comment on that because every practitioner is different, of course, and they have different fee structures. And uh, we haven't seen the, I, I hear there's a new schedule that's required for this T3 reporting it's a schedule 15 i think and it's going to require you to list all the beneficiaries and their social insurance number and address and tax jurisdiction so yes it's hard to say yeah i think that's a fair comment i just you know it's going to be one of these things where the financial advisor says client you got to go deal with your accountant you're going to have to or you've never been using an accountant it's time to get yourself an accountant to make sure that because the consequences of not filing are significant here. It's not like this is one you yeah. just let it fly. So, yeah, I I really think that this, and as much as I hear, like most accountants I talk to are, I think, similar to you, Elaine, not a huge fan of the outcomes for their clients. I think that's probably fair. Mm-hmm. But but I'm, I think it's going to drive more people to go. I hope it does. I hope for the financial advisors, financial planners listening, that they will, you know, go and develop relationships with accountants that they can then send their clients to, to make sure that this is properly handled. I think that the number of questions that have to be addressed here properly to make sure that we're reporting this without incurring penalties. I just don't see how this is going to be something that you can manage yourself now. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think so. No, not as it stands, unless there are some changes that are coming that we're, we're unaware of, like maybe they're exempting individuals and only corporations or or you know partnerships have to file this we'll see how it plays out i guess but yeah it's it's i think it's it's quite an issue and i think you know bringing awareness to it is something we need to do over the next year since now we have a a year to think about this and gather all, all our information in light of that, I am grateful you reached out to me about it because I think it's it seems so innocuous or it seems like you know most people shouldn't be subject to it. But and you know, we talked about three fairly common circumstances, right? Where this is this is a real thing that could show up, right? The, yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And then people would just be unaware at all. I mean, if there's no written bear trust agreement, then yeah, how would you know? And this is a good point. This is something we haven't addressed, but 
having a written bear trust agreement makes it obvious that there's a bear trust, but you can easily have a trust, which we normally call either constructive trust or resulting trust, where nobody ever wrote anything down. There's yes, just, exactly. Yeah. yeah. There's just, there's a trust arrangement in fact, but it, there's not one on paper. There's still a right. trust there and CRA is right. still going to look at that as a trust. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. So, so uh, yes, this yeah. it'll be, yeah. It'll be interesting in cases. The one that, that I see a little bit in, in some estate and insurance planning is cases where it's retroactively determined that there was a trust, right? So, right. you know, yeah. then, I don't know. It'd be hard to argue gross negligence there, I think. Mm-hmm. Maybe. But the the base penalty, like, is CRA going to go comb through cases where, you know, the, the judge decided that there was a resulting trust and then retroactively apply tax there? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I don't, this I don't seems, know. yeah, I don't know. It's pretty um, scary, I think. <laughs> yeah. Because we is. don't really know. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so I do want to encourage, like for the financial advisors, financial planners listening, um, treat this as a sort of bridge to your client's accountants. I think that there's something there. And I think this is true, Elaine, you, you want to hear from the financial planners and financial advisors, right? You, you want that, that bridge in place? Is that? Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, most of them, I I do communicate with them, you know, for purposes of, you know, getting the capital gains report or getting the the slips, the T3s and the T5s. But in terms of the actual planning, sometimes we don't really know what they're doing. You know, we get the, the filing slips at the end of the year, but we're not really privy to what the the big picture plan is. And maybe they've set things up that we're not aware of. Yeah, that's perfect. Okay, well, any final comments or thoughts about this, Elaine? No, I think we've covered it all. It sounds yeah, I think yeah. so. I, again, I'm really grateful for you reaching out about this because um, I honestly probably would not have sort of thought about the scope of this. And I, I listened to, I'll put a, a link to this in the show notes. I wouldn't have thought about this affecting individual taxpayers so much. Kim Moody talked about this on his podcast. Yeah, yeah. Um, but he really focused on like land developers and, and mm-hmm. issues. I, you know, like dollar amounts where those people should be dealing with a tax professional unquestionably. Right. right. And I think, yeah. you know, like that's relevant, but you know, here we've talked about, and again, just to recap, I've got the you know person who buys a house with their kids for affordability, the, you know, maybe older person who brings their kids on to buy pet, to bypass probate or create some simpler estate outcome. And then the sort of control over the, um, you know, mom and dad's bank account. And then you rightly talked about, you know, the Section 85, where I think that's mm-hmm. going to be a less common case, but, you know, where mm-hmm. the, the corporation owns property in trust, where it's still in original title, that those, mm-hmm. that's going to, to me, me, I don't know, maybe I'm misreading that, but I think that's going to be a, a less common case and one where there's a, like, there was a section 85 clearly yeah. tax professional yeah. involved, right? Yeah. And there's a bear trust agreement and the lawyer is aware of that. So yes. you know, I think the yeah. lawyers may be, you know, notifying the accountant that, Hey, you know, this, this has to be done. I don't, yeah, yeah I don't think, I don't think the lawyers would be interested in filing these returns. I mean, they are a, a tax, a tax return. So I, I can't see them delving into this, but they are, you know, right now they are doing their uh, land ownership, like in BC, the land ownership transparency registry. So they're familiar with it. 
at this point. Yeah. But That's the tax filing, yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. The tax, I'm, I'm sure that lawyers don't want to be doing tax filing. No, no. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, <laughs> Okay. Well, that's awesome. I really appreciate your time today. Elaine, any parting words for us? No, thank you for having me. I think it's it's a good topic. And I just really wanted to make the financial planning community aware of, of this filing requirement because it will be important going ahead. And of course, we, we strive to avoid penalties whenever we can. Yes. And that's that's a good point, right? Is we don't want to put our clients in more difficult situations and it's i just don't think that there's a head in the sand approach that's going to work here so yeah. thanks very much yeah. elaine yeah. have a great yeah one. thank you so much okay one of my favorite things to do is learning and i got to learn a lot in that interview which is great uh, that's why elaine reached out to me because she knew that uh, there would could be a there would be a bunch of folks who hadn't fully considered the implications of those tax changes I suspect we'll get a fair bit of discussion about that over 2023. My concern here is that we don't want to have this mad scramble for information uh, late in the year. I think that um, especially if you have clients who are going to be impacted by this, they're going to have to go and engage with that tax professional. And if they're not currently using a tax professional, that could be a little bit of a, I don't know, an implementation challenge here because you know, I know for me, um, I use a sort of mid-sized CPA firm in the city here, and my tax return. Now, my tax return was a little bit complicated. Um, the last time I paid for returns to get done, I think I'm going to have to stop doing this now, but I uh, DIY my returns in my simple years, and then I pay uh, Jonathan Whitmore, my accountant, to do my returns up in the more complex years. Um, the last time I paid for returns, it was 800 bucks for my wife and I. So folks might have a, a struggle with that. Um, now, that was a little bit of a complicated return, sale of a business and all that. So I don't know. Um, all right. We talked in there about land transfer tax, and there's a lot here. So um, BC does have a land transfer tax regime. I've included links in the show notes. Um, but yeah, Elaine mentioned this exemption where if you don't file, you don't pay or sorry she said she thought that's gone and she's right here there's there's no exemption for that um there are exemptions for a whole bunch of sort of family situations but they all have specific criteria so um i'm looking at the exemptions for bc for land transfer tax there's a really long list of exemptions here every one of them has a three or four page document that gives the exact criteria for those exemptions but a lot of exemptions that happen within the family unit where there's no trust or estate involved are going to allow a bypass of, or some limited bypass in some cases. So an exemption that is. So that's something to watch. That's going to be different in other provinces. And this is why we need to use a real estate lawyer to do our transfers. And just like every other kind of legal arrangement, we want to make sure that we're using a qualified lawyer, one who's going to know the rules here is going to say, yes, that's going to have land transfer tax, or no, that's not going to have land transfer tax. And I find this is one of these areas where there's quite a few folks who dabble, and I would prefer to deal with the qualified lawyer 
who is going to do these types of transactions all the time. And I find this is common in a sale of a business or a sale of a house, sorry, when somebody goes and you know, buys a house on the market and deals with a real real estate agent, then they're going to get connected with that real estate lawyer. But where people do these transfers sort of within the family, they don't necessarily think to take that step. So again, we're asking for money or professional advice here. I think we have to acknowledge that there's going to be costs to these transactions. Okay. Um, Elaine mentioned the Schedule 15, the new version of the Schedule 15, and I believe she's right here, but it's not out yet. Um, so we'll keep an eye on that, but there's nothing useful I can show you with um, Schedule 15. And then um, I'm including a link to a blog on the CPA Canada site, which lists the exemption. And um, Elaine rightly talked about the most common exemption you're going to run into here, and that is uh, trusts that have less than $50,000 of assets, but that's restricted to um, really cash or cash type assets, as well as securities. So deposits, government debt obligations, and listed securities is the actual um, $50,000 threshold here. As she rightly mentioned, no exemption for real estate assets. Other exemptions to the new reporting rules will be um, trusts that have existed for less than three months, uh, mutual fund trusts, segregated fund trusts, and master trusts. These trusts are all filing tax returns anyways. Um, trusts where all of the units of which are listed on a designated stock exchange, that's going to be things like um, REITs or um, income trusts, other kinds of income trusts. Uh, trust governed by registered plans. Again, all of these kinds of commercial trusts are going to file returns anyways, or some sort of return. Um, employee profit sharing plan, lawyers, general trust accounts. Uh, the one that might be impactful here, because we're already getting returns filed for these anyways, graduated rate estates and qualified disability trusts, these don't have additional reporting. They're still going to have their normal reporting required. I talked about those both in the intro comments. Uh, trusts that qualify as nonprofit organizations or registered charities. That's good. That's a nice exemption. Um, I'm hoping there's not a money laundering opportunity that shows up there, especially with NPOs. Um, employee life and health trusts, um, certain government funded trusts. I'm not sure exactly what that refers to, but that's the government's business. And then uh, cemetery care trusts and trusts governed by eligible funeral arrangements. So we have a fairly long list of exemptions, but nothing that's going to change anything that Elaine talked about in the uh, interview. I just wanted to take a minute too to acknowledge something kind of cool that happened here. Um, so I had back in season four, episode 26, I had Paul Rubner on. This was um, anti-money laundering in real life. Uh, some of you might remember Paul was the former city of Calgary vice cop who had gone on to uh, co-found a charity that gives backpacks to uh, mostly women emerging, emerging from uh, human trafficking situations. And uh, it given the link to donate to iWin, that's uh, the organization that Paul represents. Um, and somebody made an anonymous donation. Uh, so that's awesome. I, somebody tagged like the, the podcast in their donation. So um, very cool that that happened. Really appreciate whoever that is. Thank you so much. Very generous. Um, and uh, it is, as I'm recording this, actually, we're um, just a week from Christmas and a great time to sort of see that kind of news. Uh, anybody listening to this or listen to this early in the new year. So happy new year. I hope everybody had a wonderful um, holiday season. 
and I'm uh, yeah, already recording episodes well into January 2023. So I enjoy your continued studies and thank you very much for joining us. If you're listening to this episode and you're not already signed up for CE credits, this is a very easy thing to do. Just navigate over to businesscareercollege.com and you're going to sign up here for CE. Just subscribe. Currently, the pricing is $200 a year. We may be uh, introducing monthly pricing at some point, but as of today, we have a cost of $200 a year. And once you're signed up, then you can just go and listen to every episode within your subscriptions. Once you're logged in, you'll use my subscriptions here and you'll just go to the latest episode, which you'll scroll down to very near the bottom for. It doesn't matter which episode, you just scroll down and you find the one. So as of the time I'm recording this, the most recent episode is season four, episode 27. I can just start it right from here. I can do the quiz here. Once I'm done the quiz, then I can get my continuing education certificate very straightforward. Um, So I would just launch the course here and I can watch the episode from here. Uh, Now, if you happen to be already listening to it on YouTube or whatever the case is, you can just navigate right into the quiz, start your quiz, and you're just going to go through the whole thing. And then at the end of it, you'll be able to see your certifications. So we're going to bring up uh, designing small group products. We bring this up and we click on wall certificate and that's going to give me the CE certificate I need in order to maintain status wherever I happen to uh, need CE credits. So I really do encourage, I know that uh, out of our regular listeners, about 40% of you are listening to the episode for CE credits. That's about 60% who are listening out of general interest or whatever it is. Um, And I really think this is an easy way to get your CE credits, 200 bucks a year, pretty reasonable price. And as you can see from the certificate here, so, and as you hear me discuss at the beginning of the episode, we have a broad range of approvals for all of our courses. I'd like to thank uh, Joe Tong. Joseph is our editor, both for video and audio content. And Joe does a lot of good work to make sure that these episodes look and sound good, despite my better efforts. Um, I'd like to thank uh, Maria Nguyen. Maria makes sure that the episodes all get approved for CE credits. Uh, Veronica Tiber does the quality assurance through that process. And then we have a strong marketing team that makes sure that all of our content gets out there so that people can find us and uh, take advantage of the learning opportunity they might not have known about. Mm-hmm.